Welcome to Lead Pods, the official leadership podcast from USMB for pastors and church leaders, where our goal is to increase our impact together. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the USMB Lead Pods. My name is Matt Ayersman, and I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you for downloading this episode and listening today, wherever you are. Uh, we got a really great episode today. This is one of the first episodes where I actually requested the topic uh, because I have to start this episode with a confession. Okay, you ready for this? Um, I'm not a very good little MB boy. <laughs> I do not really know very much about Mennonite Brethren history. I am one of the really rebellious people who did not go to Tabor College, and even though I was kind of raised in the Mennonite Brethren Church, I grew up going to all the summer camps when I was a kid, middle school and high school student, been around for a while, um, but I don't really know a lot about the history. And along with that, sometimes when I'm talking to friends or family and I mention where I work or where I go to church, um, I have a hard time explaining who the Mennonite Brethren are. I have a hard time explaining what makes us different from uh, Baptists or Methodists or, you know, any other denomination. I'm not very articulate about the distinctives uh, that make us MBs MBs. And so, honestly, this is kind of a self-serving episode, but I figured I probably also wasn't the only one who was in that boat. So today, our goal is to go over some MB history. We got Peggy Gertson, who is the archivist at the Center for MB Studies. She knows this uh, probably better than anyone, I would venture to say. And we've also got Wendell Lowen with us from Tabor, who um, helps us kind of explain some of the distinctives to kind of give us some language that maybe you and I can use uh, to explain to our friends and family why this this small little band of believers, um, why we believe what we believe and how we're different from some other churches. So I found it to be very, very helpful, and it's an I think it's an uh, entertaining and engaging story that I think you'll enjoy. Quick heads up, it is a little bit of a longer episode than usual, and so I invite you just to get comfy, get your coffee, or you know if you're driving or at the gym or whatever you're doing, uh, just kind of buckle up for some really interesting stories, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So we'll take a quick break for a sponsor and then get right to some MB history and distinctives with Peggy and Wendell. The roots of MB Foundation can be found in the early history of the Mennonite Brethren people who were motivated to be generous so the gospel could be shared with their neighbors and around the world. In 1880, the conference first established a mission fund, a stewardship seed that has grown into a $251 million corporation known as MB Foundation. This stewardship idea has been serving the Mennonite Brethren family as a conduit for supporting ministries and kingdom building for 140 years. MB Foundation is celebrating its rich history and the 30-year anniversary of incorporation. We remain committed to providing biblical financial stewardship solutions, including planned giving services, loans, investment certificates, fund management, and stewardship education. Whether making a gift to your church, planning your will, or investing for the future, MB Foundation can help you in giving meaning to money. Contact us today at www.mbfoundation.com or 1-800-551-1547 to get started. MB Foundation is pleased to partner with USMB to bring you this episode of Lead Pods. 
Well, my friends, we've got a fun topic today. I'm excited to talk to some, uh, some people some of you may know. Today we've got uh, Peggy Gerdson and Wendell Lowen with us. We've got the experts with us today. So Peggy and Wendell, thank you for spending some time with us today. Hi, I'm hardly an expert, but okay. <laughs> well, Peggy is, so we got Peggy with us. Oh, at least. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Peggy, so you are the director and the archivist at the Center for MB Studies at Tabor. So you, I know you know this stuff like the back of your hand. You give these presentations a lot. I know MB history is something you're really passionate about. So <laughs> I know you typically give some, t some talks about the history that are, you know, several hours or multiple meetings. And so we've, we're setting you up for an almost an impossible task to go through hundreds of years of history <laughs> in just a few minutes. But... Why don't you kick us off here, Peggy? So why don't you give us an introduction of how this whole MB thing started, maybe some of the kind of key moments of our history, key leaders. Take it away, Peggy. Okay. The, the story of Mennonite Brethren actually begins centuries ago in the 1500s. It begins in a movement that we typically refer to as the Anabaptist movement. During this time, Faith was kind of a, a very dark, a dark point. The Bible wasn't an open book. And there were a number, God brought a number of reformers, people on the scene, encouraged changes and uh, did a lot of teaching and, and reflecting. So there were people that came to the conviction that to be baptized as an infant was not valid for salvation, that you needed to know what you were doing so that a, a baptism was a symbol of what had happened inside, an encounter with Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, committing your life to him, and following, uh, following him and, and the truth of the word of God. And so you had these people, that, this stirring that was happening, and there were, we typically say that there were three people Conrad Grable, Felix Monks, and George Blaurock that got together. The one baptized the other in the home of the third in 1524. And this was, uh, may seem like a common thing, but it was a heretical act. Because at that time, to choose to be baptized as an adult, that, was not, that wasn't sanctioned. A baby was brought to church. Whoever the clergyman was pronounced that baby when he baptized that baby as a, a member of the body of Christ and a citizen of that parish. So there was a complete marriage of church and state here. That was it. So these, these adults, these folks said, hey, that's not, scripture doesn't say that. And so they baptized each other as grown-ups, as adults, making a voluntary choice. Wow, so this was, and the penalty for this, what do you do with people who go against the state church and the state government? But you try to get rid of them. You look at them as uh, heretics and traitors, and that is exactly what they did. This movement began in Switzerland and soon moved into the Netherlands, Belgium area, and then across Europe. So they issued edicts. The people in charge issued edicts and said, if you're baptized a second time like this, the word Anabaptist actually means re or again. So if you're baptized a second time like this, you are a heretic and a traitor. And uh, either you recant or we will execute you. We'll get rid of you. And that's what they did. So hundreds of people were, were executed. The first martyr was Felix Monks, and they actually drowned him. 1527 in Lake Zurich. 
And they put a clergyman in the boat and said, please recant. We don't want to drown you. Well, but he didn't. And his mother was on the shore uh, calling out, don't give up, don't give up. And they drowned him. And hundreds of people were uh, tortured. Men were typically tortured and burned at the stake. And the women, they thought it was more humane to drown them. They put them in gunny sacks and ground, drowned them. And they um, gave away their children to proper families. So the, so the world is in turmoil. <laughs> um, the religious world is in turmoil at this particular point in time. A lot of people were going underground <laughs> with their faith, and yet some weren't. And they were paying people to find those who had been rebaptized again. We have one particular man who comes on the scene. He's a, a Catholic priest, and his name is Menno Simons. And this is about eight to ten years later after this first initial believer, what we call believer's baptism. He comes on the scene, and he's a very active priest in the Catholic Church. He uh, handles all the sacraments. In his own autobiography, he admits that he never studied scripture. Two things happened. His own brother had joined the Anabaptist movement. He joined a violent wing of the Anabaptist movement and lost his life, was killed. And then a man that he knew in the next village uh, in Lee Warden, a tailor, had allowed himself to be executed as an Anabaptist. And these so bothered him. Why would they do this? Why didn't they just say they changed their mind? That he began to study the Word of God for a period of about three, three years. And then he came to the oh my goodness, these Anabaptists are right. So he leaves the Catholic Church and he joins the Anabaptists. And he begins preaching and teaching. Uh, and his home was in the Netherlands, whereas the movement started in Switzerland. And he even did preaching circuits in what's now Northern Poland or uh, what was then called Prussia. So we have this this whole situation, uh, everybody's on the run. Anybody who's sympathetic now to Menno Simons, they're under penalty of, of death if they, do, if they get caught. And uh, anybody who reads his writing, he wrote a prolific writer. He was probably the most prolific of the Anabaptist writers. And everybody's uh, under a cloud of, of death and oppression and persecution. Then a few years later, mm, 20 years later, Prussia, northern Poland, opens up and says, hey, you know, um, we have this land that's worthless, that won't produce anything. It's swampland. And we will give you Glaubensfreiheit, religious freedom, to worship your faith any way that you think is important or right in exchange if you'll drain our swampland. And so the people who had taken Menno Simon's name and called themselves Mennonite Anabaptists, lots of them saw this as God's provision for them. Okay, if we can safely live there and worship Jesus without penalty of death, then maybe that's God's way out for us. And so lots and lots of them moved into, into Prussia or northern Poland. They lived in Prussia with this uh, religious freedom for approximately 250 to 300 years. Their job was to drain the swampland, but they could worship Jesus just like they believed that the, the scripture taught. Now, so this was, this was incredibly important. They could worship Jesus the way they believed the scriptures taught. And this included having a, a very, very high view of scripture. The, the word of God was actually primary, paramount. What God said we should, we should do. 
and of course that there's salvation only in in the lord jesus and that he was the only way uh, to heaven and that you should be baptized after you've committed yourself to the lord jesus and and receive uh, forgiveness of sins so this was this was a, a personal experience of salvation not something that is uh, when your parents brought the infant to church but your own personal experience and you voluntarily joined this group of believers okay probably the most important section of scripture that was important to anabaptists was the sermon on the mount and the and the words of jesus and the whole piece that we should live at peace as much as lieth in us and not do harm to other people to give to help to uh, be accountable to each other that we're in this thing together and and that we have uh have this this bond together so and they don't want to participate in anything that does violence or destruction and so when pressure offered them glauben's freiheit or religious freedom they said none of your young men have to go into the military and this was very attractive to them. So this they saw this as this was their way. That they could be faithful disciples of Jesus. The primary term that they used to describe their Christian life was nachfolge. And that literally means to follow after. You follow after Jesus. You start with Jesus. You're, you have a personal conversion experience. And then you keep on following till, till you die. And so getting to follow out the way they believed Jesus wanted was just absolutely key. And so um, they, they did that in, in Prussia. And they were, uh, and things kept happening. They were never to totally accepted in, in Prussia. For a long time, they couldn't own, they didn't have title to their land. They, every time a baby was born in a Mennonite family, there was an extra head tax, even though they didn't have to send their young men to military school they had to give a mandatory donation to the school so it was kind of a it was a crazy time and so they're always walking on eggshells so in the midst of all this they're still looking for maybe a safer place that they could that they could worship and live and raise their families and so some of them started moving into other polish provinces volinia Galicia, we have descendants of these those places all here in Kansas, into uh, the Warsaw region of Poland, southern Poland. We had they had Mennonite settlements there. And then in 1763, Catherine the Great made a, a proposal to uh, give Glaubensfreiheit to Mennonites, in fact, <laughs> to any foreign speaking settler. <laughs> Any, anybody who didn't speak Russian, uh, to come into the Ukraine and that they, she would give them land. She would give them the right to have their own services and their own church services and their own schools. They could have their own town officers and none of their young men had to serve in the military. Now, this proposal, 1763, sounded really exciting, except that the Mennonites are very, very cautious people. And so this uh, offer was extended to any, any German-speaking farmer in Prussia and, uh, or Poland. And um, the German Lutherans are the first ones to take her up on it. They make the move. 
and some German-speaking Catholics and German-speaking Swedes and German-speaking Jews, German-speaking Baptists. And then finally, after 25 years, the Mennonites think, oh, it looks safe. I think we can make, we can do this, right? So in 1789, we have the first large group of Mennonites from Prussia go all the way down to the Ukraine and set up a colony, which we call the Alt Colony or the Kortitsa. And then in 1803, another large group comes to and found and founded a colony called the Molechna colony, which had 60 villages. So you've got this, and then lots and lots of daughter colonies and all sorts of other expansions and estates and, and things. And so the Mennonites did that. They lived, they lived actually pretty happily for almost a hundred years in in uh, the Ukraine area, uh, expanding into the Crimean Peninsula until about 1871, 1872, the privileges that they had been granted by Catherine the Great, which were supposed to have been in perpetuity forever and ever and ever to you and your descendants, they were threatened. They said, you know what, we've, uh, we've changed our mind. And by then Catherine the Great wasn't there anymore. So they said, you all, need to get get rid of your German language and speak our language, Russian. Your schools and your church services all need to be in Russian and your young men all need to go into the military. Well, then all the red flags went up. So everybody's wondering what in the world God is saying. Should they relocate again? What What's happening with us? We want to be obedient followers of Jesus. And what do we do? Of course, the Russian government, they had a separate administrative committee that took care of these foreigners. They called them foreign-speaking settlers. And uh, they said, uh, oh my, we're going to lose this workforce. And so they start doing a little bit of backtracking and they send out a, an ambassador, von Leben, to say, oh, you know what? You don't have to make all these changes immediately. We'll, let, we'll give you 10 years or so. And and maybe you can go into forestry service for a little while. And, but you know, the damage had been done because uh, they didn't believe them. They weren't trustworthy anymore. And so uh, lots of them looked to for other places that God might want them to live, to be obedient followers. But I need to go back to how the Mennonite Brethren got started in the midst of all this. The mass immigration to leave the Ukraine was starts in, in 1874. In 1860, 14 years earlier, is the birth of our, of our group that we call the Mennonite Brethren. And God had done a number of things to set the stage for this. There were pietist preachers, Edward Wiest was the most prominent among them, that did wonderful uh, Bible lessons, Bible speaking, Bible studies. He was, he was Lutheran background, but he, he really preached the word of God and taught people things that they just hadn't heard before. There was another group called the Stundes. Stunde means hour, and they held hour-long cottage prayer meetings, Bible studies in homes, which was unheard of. You didn't meet outside the church building. And, and people were reading the Bible for themselves, and they were getting saved. They were finding the, uh, this new vital relationship with Jesus. So you had this stirring. There were folks in the Malechna, the big Malechna colony that had 60 villages, there was a, a group of men, they saw things happening around them in their Mennonite church 
which they thought, oh my goodness, God can't be pleased with what's happening here. The Mennonite church had gone into a period of staleness or a decline, coldness, a lack of spiritual vitality. And the best way I can explain it is when you first receive Jesus as your Savior, your world view is turned upside down. You have a brand new life. The Bible is an open book. You have this uh, brand new peace and joy and a new life. Oh my goodness, you know, you know Jesus now and he loves you. Well, you can't hand this relationship, this newfound relationship, you just can't hand it to your sister or your brother or your parents or your best friend. They have to personally have that experience and that relationship themselves. Some people here in U.S., they go through the mechanics or the motions of joining a church for whatever reason, peer pressure, parental pressure. They go through, they go through the mechanics without having something happen inside of you. Well, that's what was happening in the Mennonite colonies in, in the Ukraine. There were people to keep their name on their land that they had and to keep their rights to have their own schools and their own church services and their own businesses. They had to have their name on a Mennonite church roll, according to this Russian administrative committee. And so people were going through the motions of church membership belonging, having your name on a list, without having a heart change. There were people in the Molechna colony in Elizabeth Tall and Gnadenfeld, and they saw this happening, that people were going through motions. They were taking communion without actually living like Jesus describes in scripture. They were being dishonest. They were engaged in what they call frivolous activities. They were uh, drunk on Saturday night and went to church on Sunday morning without confession. And so these men said, God's going to judge us if we don't do something. And so they went, they we went through proper channels. They went to their elders and they said, can't you see what's happening? Can't you do something about it? They went to the Russian authorities who really could have cared less, but they went to their own Mennonite ministers and they thought they should have cared. And they said the typical kinds of things like it's not really as bad as you think it is and give it time and it'll change. And, and it didn't. And so there were 18 men who got together in a house. They, had, they picked their most literate or educated man among them, um, an Abram Cornelson, to draft a document. We call it the document of secession. And they started out by saying, we fear the judgment of God on our lives for this, this, and this. And they outlined all the things that they saw that they were sure God was displeased with. And they said they we want, they wanted to be a pure body of believers. They wanted to be following the scriptures. And so these 18 men, and of course, these represented all families, they signed their name on this, this document and they, they did the unthinkable. They served each other communion without an ordained uh, minister among them. And then they baptized each other again, this unheard of. And they chose the most uh, drastic symbol they could come up with, which was immersion you know, where you were totally immersed in water, buried in your sins and raised to new life. And so they pulled out. They were called, they were the brethren who left, but they were still Mennonites. So that's why they were called Mennonite brethren. That's 1860. 1869, nine years later in the Crimean Peninsula, almost identical thing happened. 
out of the Kleingemeinde church, a coldness, a, a, a lack of, of spiritual vitality and, and fervor. They pulled out and they were also, <laughs> they had a document. It was signed by 18 men, which is ironic. Uh, same number, nine years later. And they lived in the Crimea, so they were called the Krimer Mennonite Brethren. So we have those two groups that are part of the whole landscape, spiritual landscape, when immigration was forced upon them or the privileges were threatened. You had these two groups, separate but very much alike. And uh, so when uh, immigration happens, between 15 and 18,000 Mennonites leave the Ukraine, including the Crimean Peninsula and southern Poland, Warsaw area, that, and Prussia, they come to North America. And they settle in, in what I call the Midwest Corridor. It starts in Manitoba and goes all the way south. At that time, it was Dakota Territory, North and South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, Kansas. Oklahoma's not on the scene yet, all the other places. But so, so they, they set up and they've come, they came here, believing that this is what God wanted them to do. They represent about a third to a half of the Mennonites living in the Ukraine at that time. The others decided that God wanted them to stay, and, and so they did. And, and they lived through um, the Russian Revolution and all that. So we have the Mennonites here. And when they got here, they, they set up uh, primary congregations, the Mennonite Brethren, and uh, all up and down. And so here in Kansas, we have, for, for the oldest Mennonite Brethren congregation, we have Abenfeld. For the oldest Krimer Mennonite Brethren congregation, we have Parkview. It used to be called Ganad now. For the oldest of the Polish Mennonite Brethren, we have um, Hillsborough Mennonite Brethren. So you have uh, a represented around us and then all, up, all north of us as well. Nebraska, Minnesota, Dakotas. Is that a good place to stop? <laughs> <laughs> that's great, Peggy. I, I knew, yeah, we're trying to cover a lot of ground in hardly any time, but that's that's awesome. That's a really good overview. And I think that highlights some of the important things that set, set us apart hundreds of years ago, which sets us up perfectly. Wendell, I want to transition over to you. So as as I was saying, like I for people who are kind of raised in Mennonite Brethren circles, or, or even just modern evangelicals, things like adult baptism don't seem very radical to us now or serving each other communion doesn't sound very radical to us now but we have this kind of radical history that a lot of us maybe aren't aware of so if you're if you're describing mbs to people what are some of the kind of key things that you use to describe us yeah well first of all i want to thank peggy for sharing every time she shares i i learned something new and uh it was really good to be also reminded of a lot of of uh, our story as Mennonite Brethren, and in a lot of ways, my story. So, you know, when I'm describing who are the Mennonite Brethren, do people want the elevator speech or, you know, I'm trying to figure out how how deep we want to go. Sometimes I say, we're, we're a lot like Baptists, except we live it. Uh, which, <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> which is kind of a, 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 a little bit of a stark way of saying it. I usually tell people we're just a small band of Jesus followers trying to live like Jesus lived. And I don't know if that, if that elicits questions, but, you know, Peggy said, you know, about being, uh, about following Jesus, about 
the Sermon on the Mount and being uh, Jesus being central, I think is is so key to Mennonite Brethren theology that we have a Christ-centered theology. The way we understand Scripture is Christ-centered. So we begin, like uh, Peggy mentioned before, with the Sermon on the Mount. So when I talk to our students in our introductory Bible class, you know, we 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 have this Christ-centered theology. Well, what does that mean? If you if you thought of various lenses, and as uh, I or you or anyone is trying to think about uh, who God is and questions about life or the world, we first look to Jesus. So, and where? Well, we look to the Sermon on the Mount because that's where we find Jesus's teachings and concentrate, right? Yes. Yes. And then we look through that lens to understand the rest of the New Testament. We look through that lens to understand the Old Testament. We look through that lens to understand the world and ourselves. Because part of our theology is uh, something called progressive revelation, that God progressively revealed himself as time went on and was most fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus. So I like to say that Jesus uh, was God's son. Jesus meant what he said, and he was talking to us. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, go into all the world and make disciples, this is what Jesus says. So uh, we want to take that uh, seriously. And, you know, uh, Peggy mentioned Part of the issue wasn't just about believing in, in Jesus. It was about following. I, I think Jesus said, follow me, about 86 times in the Gospels. And depending on how you count, he said, believe in me twice. So that that is an indicator of what's important to, to Jesus. So believing in Jesus and having that personal relationship with Jesus is just the beginning of the journey. So that's the door that uh, unlocks this journey of discipleship, of following Jesus daily in life and following him in, in the kingdom, right? Uh, some people, I like to call it an eternal kind of life. Sometimes I say, have you ever been to like a track meet? Maybe you're watching the Olympics and the gun goes off and somebody jumps across the starting line and then stops and starts cheering. Like he crossed the starting line. Yay. And uh, for most of us, that would be this is ridiculous. Well, I think a lot of Christians might look at their faith that way. They accepted Christ and that's all that is. And it's much more. It's a long haul marathon of daily discipleship and obedience. Mm -hmm. We're called home. You know, I've kind of gone on here, but it's about following Jesus as the heart of, of our uh, understanding of faith. That's good. And maybe it's, maybe it's because again, I've been kind of raised in the, in the circles and, but to me, everything you're sounding, everything you're saying just sounds like Christianity to me. Like, I, I hope most church, if not all churches believe that I know not everyone actually lives it out. Like you're saying right. Wendell, but if, I guess maybe this is maybe I'm the the dummy in the room and you guys are way smarter than I am. But what is it is is the distinctive really that we hopefully are actually living this out or how how should this look differently in an MB church compared to a Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian or whatever church? Well, I think this might be a good time to talk about the nuances of Mennonite brethren theology and our theological perspective. So we've got this yeah. these 
two streams and they're not necessarily opposed to each other, but they come together in MB practice and theology. And the one was Anabaptism, mm -hmm. which again, emphasized discipleship. And we've talked about that. It also emphasizes the, the importance of the community of believers in holding each other accountable and encouraging each other. And then also, uh, as Peggy mentioned, sort of nonviolent, a way of life, nonviolent reconciliation. I'm really summarizing, but those are some elements. Then we have the, this evangelical stream that uh, emphasizes this personal commitment to Christ. You know, we make a, a personal uh, decision. And the authority of Scripture, of course, it's our uh, authoritative guide for faith and practice, as it says in our Confession of Faith. And then also proclaiming the gospel in, in word. Uh, if we bring these two together, you know, we, we first have a personal commitment, and then we live it out daily in discipleship. The scripture is authority, authoritative for us, but it's also within the context of the community of believers. And together we come to understand what this word of God means for us in our, our daily lives. And we want to proclaim the gospel both in word, but also in deed. And we, we want to do that nonviolently with love and compassion. And that's why I think Mennonite brethren, uh, are re they really lead the way in fields like nursing and doctors, of course, mission work, uh, teachers, so that's kind of how they sort of come together. I wouldn't say that Mennonite Brethren have the corner on, like these are all elements that other traditions have, but there's a, it's a unique blend that makes us MB, right? Yes. Um, that's good. And I know for both of you, I mean, and I've heard bits and pieces of this story, but Peggy, you did a really good job telling it kind of succinctly there that, you know, we have this history of being, kind of rebellious like we we stood up for what we thought the scriptures taught even if it was illegal and we might be killed for it and i mean hearing you tell it like that we have this history and it's kind of cool it's a history to be proud of right like we our our ancestors or whoever of our faith stood up and did things that other people weren't willing to do uh to propel the the gospel that they believe so maybe if read the one of you maybe Wendell will start with you how does envy history how does it affect you kind of day to day like do you have kind of just this pride of here's where i came from and this is why i've stayed around in the denomination so long like what does this story mean to you today well yeah first of all it's it's, it's my story it's my heritage but I think it was in the 90s where I had a, an epiphany, sort of a moment where it was also theologically where I wanted to call home. Mm. Um, as MBs, part of the Anabaptist movement, we've been a people on the run, people on the fringes. It's been a renewal movement. You know, Peggy mentioned the stirring of, of God, stirring of the Holy Spirit. We wanted a fresh faith. Faith. There's some things in our theology that I think really resonate with our current culture. Hmm. So a lot of people look at uh, Christians as hypocrites these days. Hmm. They say one thing, but they live another. Well, you know, as MBs, when we emphasize following Jesus and our daily discipleship, we'll, we'll say, okay, you don't like Christians, but just watch me. Just look at me and watch my life. Mm -hmm. and see what that tells you about Jesus. Yeah. Right. And we've got a, a culture and a world that's really suspicious of power. 
and um, all those who hold power. Well, as MBs, we've been on the fringes and we've been on the run. And I think our story resonates with those who are powerless. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, or in Luke, he said, blessed are the poor, that Jesus's emphasis was on the marginalized, the weak, the poor, the widow. Sort of at the core of our Mennonite Brethren theology, we ought to be sensitive to the weak and the poor and the marginalized. That that's part of our our history and our in our story. And I think today, you know, as Christians, are we're losing sort of our place at the table. I use the analogy of the Thanksgiving table. You know, there's the grown-up table and the kids' table. Uh-huh. As Christians, for at least in the U.S. You know, we've been at the grown-up table, probably carving the turkey. Uh, now we have other movements and institutions that are trying to push us maybe to the kids' table. For a lot of Christians, that's really, really hard. But as MBs, we're, we've been used to that. That's part of our story. Yeah. Uh, it looks a lot more like the first century church. Mm-hmm. right? And we were comfortable with working on the fringes of, of, of culture and working, dare I say, subversively, but staying true to Christ mm-hmm. uh, as we continue uh, to do our work. Yeah. So, yeah, those are some things that I think is our theology it can really resonate today uh, and something we can hold on to. We're kind of an underdog story, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. even... Even now, all three of us are in Kansas, where a lot of MBs are in Kansas, right? But I, I grew up, my high school is a couple of miles from here, and most of my friends have never heard of Mennonite Brethren. Mm. Where we are, this we're a small group of people who are taking this seriously, and that is, that is a cool a cool part of our story. Right. So, Peggy, I want to come back to you. I've got one more question for you, but do you want to add anything on to what Wendell just said? Just to say, um, Wendell is blessed because he, he he this was this is his heritage, and it has become my heritage because I wasn't uh, I wasn't raised in a home that was Mennonite brethren I wasn't raised in a home that was even Christian my parents were not, were very pagan and so when I became part of, of uh, God's family and, and became part of the body of Christ um, that was terribly exciting and so then when when I met and fell in love with the man who's now my husband and he said, um, well, you, now you know you need to come into my church. And I had been going to a, a non-denominational Bible church with the girl who had done so much to persuade me to accept Christ. So now Gaylord said, uh, you have no spiritual identity of your own. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I, I read and studied and I thought, my goodness, I believe all this. And, and I experienced a degree of persecution, if you want to call it, ostracism, surely, when I accepted Christ in my family, because I was definitely separating myself. So I understood some of what was going on and I embraced it. And uh, the men I brethren from the beginning have wanted to be uh, faithful. And I, that resonates with me because I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful to Jesus. I want to be faithful to the word. Mm-hmm. Men, I brethren, they, they, uh, we are small, but I think, I think we're in the right. I think our heart is definitely in the right place, and we're following the right way. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, and we've got. I've got a million more questions for you. We're almost out of time, but I do have one that I think is important. And Peggy, maybe I'll start with you. 
um, for people who maybe they're trying to explain Mennonite Brethren to their friends or family, or maybe people listening today aren't really familiar with who we are, they hear Mennonite and that word is triggering, it's confusing, they have images that come to their mind, misconceptions. Can you briefly, Peggy, maybe tell us what are Mennonites? How, are, how is that different from Mennonite Brethren? And wh- where do Amish and Holderman all fit in? And again, I know that's a long conversation, but can you kind of quickly, just if we're trying to explain this to our friends, how are we different from those other groups? To the extent that we take it seriously, to that extent, we are different. And, and to be fair to the other branches of, of the Mennonite family, because it's a wide family, the Mennonite family as a whole, and there are parts that we like and parts that we don't. But, you know, God is always at working. Renewal is what God does. That revival, renewal, that, that's, his, that's what he does. And when you think about, that, see, the, the Amish, they were born out of, out of a man's conviction that the church he was in in Alsace was, needed to be renewed. He thought they were being too lenient. They weren't following the rules of that time in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And he, he, wanted, he wanted them to be more faithful. <laughs> and his name was Jacob Amon. And, and so he pulled a group of people out of, out of his little congregation. And they were called Amish after him. But to the extent that he was trying, he was trying to, to be faithful. They sort of froze in time certain cultural uh, prescriptions also maybe give the the sort of other side of the the coin it could be also the degree to which you uh uh engage culture mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, as, yes as mbs we may be have adopted elements of our culture that say the holdemans and the amish or the older mennonite would not yes. so um there's that uh element uh as well and I think they're all their efforts are noble and they're trying to follow Jesus as best as they can. And how that is expressed is the degree to which, yes, yeah, Peggy said, how serious they are about their, uh, their discipleship, but also the degree to which we've kind of a, a adapted to engaged adopted mm-hmm. culture and what, where is the line? Mm-hmm. And those, we're drawing lines at different places. Uh, I live in a, in a part of Hillsboro. There's a little pocket of Holdeman families around, you know, and we we're, get along well, and we all go to church. <laughs> I, I think I'll see them in heaven. I'm just not sure if they think they'll see me in heaven. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. Uh-huh. Well, that's even confusing, right? Because I think the, if I'm, if my understanding is correct, that the, the general conference Mennonites politically, culturally lean pretty liberal. Um, we would say Amish and Holderman lean probably pretty conservative. Is it fair to say that we're kind of in the middle of those? Are those kind of the middle? Are we in the middle of those two fences, would you say? Or how? Peggy, what do you think? Wow. I would be a little, I would be a little apprehensive about making it that definitive. Right. But there are some, we used to engage monthly with a general conference Mennonite family uh, that we just loved very, very much. And we would go to funerals that, that he preached and he would, they would never talk about a salvation experience in that person's funeral. Mm-hmm. And then we went to one funeral 
and suddenly he actually made mention of when this person actually uh, he actually used the word I forget how he said it he had joined their their fellowship and had been had been baptized and he had said he saw the difference between you and us he said is that you mbs are just more literal <laughs> he says. Hmm. And, and you take it at, at a personal level whereas they just sort of that they grew up into salvation they hmm. just sort of you know kind of so there are differences in how we how we look at this this relationship that we have and this path that we're following somewhere in the middle but i think we would lean a little more to the conservative side of middle than the liberal side of middle maybe Wendell would think different but also the other difference between that i see working in the archives we have a lot of folks who are very interested in in family history and so they come to me and they say my grandmother is mennonite what in the world does that mean okay so i get to I get to do a little bit of telling and that's exciting for me because I am, like you said, I am passionate, passionate about it. But, but the, the, the names that are not traditionally on a Mennonite church role, they show up in Mennonite Brethren very widely because we have a, a missionary mindset, a we witness. I, uh, we want to give out the gospel to everybody and it doesn't matter if their name is not Suderman or Friesen or Flaming or what or Lowen or whatever that we want people to to come and Tester Fast he said one time he was interviewed in it he was a longtime MB pastor he said well, well how come you don't uh, wear bonnets and and drive buggies and he said because we want to be able to relate to the people around us and want to identify with them to to the degree we can and be a witness so that they'll listen to our story about jesus mm. and i think that's key yeah that's well said yeah that's a good i get that question a lot too that's a good answer awesome hey both of both of you are so full of wisdom and knowledge it's been fun to hear your stories we're wrapping up time here but as we close do either one of you have anything you want to wrap up with today no just thanks for having us this has been fun thank you i agree i was apprehensive but this is fine <laughs> <laughs> awesome Okay. You guys have both been awesome sharing a lot of really helpful insights. So thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Matt. Thank you. Lead cohorts are online meeting places for anyone interested in gathering with like-minded people or learning more about a specific topic. The cohorts are free. The only cost is for a book if recommended by the cohort leader. Cohorts generally meet via Zoom every other week for an hour or so and last for about three months. Lead cohorts are offered in spring and fall. The next session of lead cohorts will begin this September. Find more information on the USMB website at www.usmb.org. Well, we crammed a lot into today's episode, but I really did enjoy that conversation. Learned a whole lot. I hope you did as well. And it was good for me. You know, I would not have used phrases like rebellious underdogs to describe the MBs before this conversation, but hey, that's who we are and that's our history and I think that's actually pretty cool. And like Wendell said, a lot of the things that do kind of set us apart are things that I think really do resonate with our culture right now. And so, yeah, that was good for me to listen to that and I hope you really uh, enjoyed it and learned a lot. And you know, this is another episode where I really encourage you to share this on social media or again, you know, text or email, however you communicate with people close to you. But 
Um, if you've ever had conversations like I have where you weren't really sure how to explain uh, who we are or where we came from, what makes us different, um, I think this is a great episode that you could share around a little bit to help uh, spread the word a little bit about MBs and about things that are probably important to you. So uh, wherever you're listening, I do invite you just to share it. Of course, you can rate, subscribe, do all those things to help spread the word a little bit. We'd be very grateful for your help in that. So, hey, thanks again for listening today. And we've got several more episodes coming your way soon. So please do stay subscribed and we will look forward to seeing you next time on The Lead Pods. Thanks for listening to Lead Pods. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to our show wherever you're listening today. Learn more by visiting usmb.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll see you next time as we learn more practical tools to increase our impact together.